from Albany Public Library in Albany, New York. This is the Albany Made Podcast. of today's episode, we're featuring a long-standing tradition here at APL, the Friends of Albany Public Library's Weekly Book Talks, where our director, Scott Jarzumbeck, recently gave a presentation on Long Island migrant labor camps, Dust for Blood, a book about the darker side of Eastern Long Island's agricultural history. In part two, Scott speaks with the author, Mark Torres, about the book and their shared history and legacy, having grown up on Long Island close to where the camps were once located. In 1949, two young children died in a Bridgehampton migrant camp. Their family home, a converted chicken coop, had burnt down while their parents were out working in the field. This was not the first or last tragedy in an area that is known as the summer escape for many of our state's elites, starting with World War II and reaching all the way into the 80s. Shacks and concrete structures would house migrant workers, some dying in fires, trapped in housing because doors needed to be nailed shut to keep out the cold and intruders. There were times where some succumbed to smoke in a maze of bodies, personal items, and cots. Others would die being overworked and at the hands of each other or at the hands of those who recruited them for the work. What Mr. Torres does in this book is shine light on the fortunes this state grew on the backs of workers brought from Southern states to work extremely hard jobs, live in camps of slum-like conditions, and only to have their wages stolen by those who recruited them. Dust for Blood is richly researched work that is a fascinating read. A story about failed government, agriculture, race, religion, inequity, and greed. I want to talk about the author, Mark Torres. He describes himself as a husband, father, attorney, and author of several literary works. He is also a labor attorney with a very good reputation. In his writing, his main objective is to enlighten readers about obscure local New York history that has largely been underreported and often cries out for justice. So you're wondering why I picked this book up. Uh, Before I moved to Albany, I grew up on a farm on the eastern end of Long Island. I saw what migrant labor looked like firsthand. While my family farm was too small to have migrant laborers, our farmhands actually grew up in the town and came here, their families came here from the South. So when I saw this book, I knew I had to read it based on my own personal experience and background. I was very nervous about my own ancestors, what names would come up, and there are a few. I wanted to see how my experience matched up with the experience of the migrants in my town. And I wanted to understand better the diversity of the town that I grew up in. And that begins with agriculture. Long Island was once well known for its potatoes. And I just want to read a passage from the book because I think it better explains it. Ultimately, the potato would make Suffolk County one of the hundred richest counties in the United States for farm income. 
1943, the county maintained 55,000 acres of potatoes and 13,000 acres of other crops. According to the 1945 Potato Harvest Survey, nearly 20% of the 98 million bushels of potatoes harvested from the three largest potato growing states in the eastern United States came from Long Island. This story really starts with the war effort in World War II. Demand for food was high, but also was the demand for labor. With many young working age individuals going off to work or working in factories, farm labor was hard to come by. World War II created a serious demand for manpower in the country's armed services and military industries. As a result, a labor shortage was created in the agricultural industry. Farming communities in places like Suffolk County struggled to find enough help to harvest the staggering quantity of crops that needed to be produced this year. FDR created the Emergency Farm Worker Program, which brought farm laborers from Mexico and later would include other countries like Jamaica. These were great workers, but they had advocates, specifically the Jamaican government, who often fought for better living conditions, working conditions, and higher pay for the individuals that they were sending from their island. In rethinking the farmers and, and, and the individuals that were recruiting, thought about where could they find cheaper labor? And that cheap labor would be found at home. By 1960, there were an estimated 4,500 migrant workers in Suffolk County. Of that total, 3,500 were mostly black men and women from Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Virginia, the Carolinas, and the remaining workers would be from Puerto Rico. Bosses would go down south in a car and pick people up and say, we have really great work for you, and they would sell this work. As Torres points out, the recruitment process for migrant laborers has been described as a remnant of the drone system, a system of contract labor used to secure laborers who were brought into the United States. The root of the system dates back to Italy's unification in 1861, which caused a consolidation of land and led to a loss of jobs, forcing many people to leave the country in search of work. A padrone, which is an Italian word loosely translated in English, as a boss or a manager, was essentially a labor broker who contracted with employees to fill labor shortage with skilled and unskilled workers. They arranged transportation and housing. Since most of the immigrant workers lacked the funds to pay for these items, fees were placed on credit and were later deducted from their earnings. Since it is rife with abuse, this system has been wisely criticized as a form of human trafficking. The feeling of helplessness from the economic manipulation and abuse at the hands of ruthless and corrupt crew leaders only compounded the abysmal life of migrant workers at the camps. Since they were denied the right to union representation and were not citizens of the state, migrant workers were unable to make changes to these conditions. And these conditions were, by every sense, deplorable. For many, they were run-down shacks. And then later on, after there was some state oversight, they were these, basically they looked like garages. They were made out of uh, concrete blocks and multiple people lived in them. In 1957, Albert Say, president of the Eastern Long Island branch of the NAACP, publicly charged that the camp lacked sanitary facilities for workers. Say also claimed that migrant workers were crowded into filthy shacks with dirty linen. 
and were forced to pay overinflated prices for basic food items because often they were not allowed to purchase food in town. If the workers brought food from outside the camp, Say explained, they would be penalized by not getting any work. In response to the allegations, Governor Harriman ordered hearings into what he described as the dark, filthy hovels. Eddie Clark, a migrant farm worker who once lived in the camp, stated, It was a hellhole, a bunch of shabby cabins up next to each other. I find it interesting because knowing where one of these camps was, actually the camp they described in Kachog, knowing how much that property now goes for, it's incredible to think about this description, what they look like now, and how much that property is worth. Education was minimal. Basically, the schools were just to kind of keep the kids behaving during the day and maybe safe and fed, but educators were often told not to bother, just to basically be babysitters. And that's not to say that the, these camps were without crime and violence from the workers themselves. They were actually dangerous. Um, there was a lot of theft and there was a lot of assaults. And there was dangers in the housing themselves. Kerosene heat. Most of these small shacks didn't have a built-in HVAC system. And then, of course, there was always other dangers whenever human beings congregate. And Torres talks about this. He says, many farm workers suffered from a variety of maladies including mental illness, sexually transmitted diseases, and alcohol abuse. The spread of infectious diseases in unsanitary and crowded labor camps was also a grave concern. These camps weren't without crime and violence. Torres tells a story. In 1955, a migrant farm worker named Willie Patterson was stabbed to death by Eddie G. House at a Kutchog labor camp. House, who was a laborer from Mississippi and later became known as a blues artist, Sun House, objected when Patterson entered his cabin to search for money that he claimed was owed to him, and House stabbed him in the chest. House fled to the nearby woods, but was captured a short while later with the bloody knife in his possession. He later admitted to committing the crime and was arraigned on first-degree manslaughter. After reading this book, I visited my uncle out on the eastern end of Long Island, and we talked about this book a little. He was a teacher in the middle school, and I always talk about my middle school principal. My middle school principal probably is an educator who taught me the most about teaching, um, but also taught me the most about leadership. He would just show up in classrooms and hang out in the back. And one day I finally said, why do you do this? You make everybody nervous. And he laughed and he goes, sometimes my job's really hard and I want to stay passionate about it. And so I like to come down to the classrooms and, and I like to see the work being done because that reinvigorates me. It reminds me of why I do what I do. Mr. Patterson's first name is Willie Patterson. Mr. Patterson came from a family of laborers and was raised by his grandmother because they didn't know where his parents were. So this section, this may be Mr. Patterson's father. Mr. Patterson left Riverhead and went down to Atlanta. And my uncle asked, Willie, why are you going down to Atlanta to work with kids again? Aren't you retired? And Mr. Patterson said, my grandmother raised me, and my grandmother was a laborer, and we came from Atlanta. And she made me promise that when I retired, I would go down and I'd go back to our people, and I would do things for our people down south. That's where this whole narrative fits into my day-to-day -day life. Not only through my family and the fact that we are connected to this 
one way or another, but just the simple fact that an educator who had such a significant influence on me came from this background. And again, with every sad story, there are good stories. There's heroes. There's the NAACP of Long Island. There's the Reverend Arthur Bryant, a clergyman from Greenport who's interlaced throughout this book. He is often the most vocal advocate for laborers' rights. He seems to be lost to East End history. I also want to read a little bit about H. Lee Dennison. He was a county executive of Suffolk County uh, with a tenure that spanned from 1960 to 1972. And he is well known, I've heard the name. He was known for the conversion of Suffolk from a rural county to a major suburban enclave. He was once described as a man who dragged Suffolk County into modern times. Dennison vigorously opposed the migratory labor system, in particular, the exploitation of farm workers by crew leaders. In 1968, Dennison spoke before the newly formed Seasonal Farm Labor Commission and openly advocated for an end to the migrant labor system in Suffolk County. During his speech, he warned that if the migrant labor system was not abolished, the county would continue to pay the price for bad publicity and residents would suffer from higher taxes and increased cost to the county's health and welfare system. Right now, this country is reckoning with race, reckoning with class, reckoning with the way we've treated each other. And I think it's really important for people to read about their own history and accept their own history and see the part that their families and their ancestors played in this country's questionable history. Thank you so much for joining me, Mark. You're known for being a lawyer and, and being in labor, but your writing's known more for fiction. What brought you down the path of writing a nonfiction book? And why did you select this topic? Even in my fictional works, my first book is Stirring in the North Fork. And that's, by the way, is in 2015 is when I first learned of the camps, particularly the Cutchog Labor Camp, the largest camp in the county. Um, and I always knew I want to come back to it. I realized there was a lot of history uh, regarding that. And I realized that, and I incorporated that into my fictional book. And, you know, and I, I kind of used that as a teaching moment. There's some history here that should be discussed, as well as my follow-up book, Adeline, which again was a crime novel, a um, murder mystery, but it did cover topics of the New York State mental health treatment throughout the uh, 20th century. So in both my works, even though they're fictional stories, I incorporated real life, uh, real history, historical elements of importance to help educate and illuminate the, the readers. Um, moving towards that, I realized that there's a bigger message to tell. And when I, when I re revisited the topic of the labor camps, I realized that I didn't realize how big it was at first. Uh, my first real realization was searching for primary sources and there were none. Then I realized that the mission became bigger than just telling the history. It's, it's 
you know, finding this history, telling it accurately, and then promoting it in the proper way. It was a great responsibility, which I took. So I learned of the camps back in 2015. But to answer your question more succinctly, that, uh, you know, I always strive to uh, discuss um, uh, obscure uh, bits of history, things that that people may or may not have been aware of, but it certainly has been undertold and always want to champion that voice and, and, and share it. From the reading, you can get a sense that you really dove into this. And what were some of the things that really connected to and surprised you? First and foremost, again, that it was never told. And, and I can, we can all understand why. Um, this is not proud history for an area known for its beauty and lush areas and vineyards. And, and, and I myself vacation there often as well. It's a beautiful area. It's just something that hasn't been told. And at the same time, you know, there are records dating back for the early settlers, the advent of the railroad. Uh, when the giant oak trees are planted, you, all of these things you, you hear about, but yet there was nothing on the camps. So that in and of itself was a great driver in me telling the story. And then as I moved along, I realized the indifference that the county had, the legislators had, the residents had, the crew leaders and operators certainly had. It, it was just a gross human indifference to the conditions at the camp that went on for so long. I remember uh, quoting several articles from 1956, a reporter named Ruth Shire at the time. She railed against the system, particularly the county, and how they took this ostracized approach and just kind of ignored it. It will go away by itself. It will solve itself. Sadly, that is correct but not the way we'd hoped. It wasn't a humanitarian push. It was the change in the agricultural processes, including use of more machinery, less manpower is needed, and less camps. That ultimately led to that end. But really that indifference to so many people who came through the system year after year and suffered through it was certainly pronounced for me. One person who came up that surprised me was Reverend Arthur Cullen Bryant from Greenport. I grew up three towns over. This is the first time I'm hearing this person's name, and I spent a lot of time in Greenport. Who was this individual? He pops up again and again in your work. And undoubtedly, he's one of the greatest inspirations for me to write this. When I first learned of his efforts, and it really spawned when I when I came upon a documentary entitled What Harvest for the Reapers, produced in 1968 by Morton Silverstein for NET Journal at the time, which was later bought by PBS. The Reverend Bryant was part of that documentary. I later came across records. He testified at Congress in 1969, promoting that documentary and the conditions at the camps. Uh, he was a real fierce advocate. And I also learned that he faced death threats for it. He was a man of cloth, a man of religion, advocating for better conditions. And by the way, he was also well-trusted by many of the local farmers who initially relied upon him when they wanted him to advocate for better conditions with the market and other agricultural needs. So they turned quickly when he, he aimed his focus on bettering the conditions of the camp. And then I, I, I wanted to know more about this gentleman. Is he alive? Where can I find him? And sadly, he passed away at a very young age of 51. And I was really upset. And that was a kind of common or par for this course, because every time I stumbled on the name, they more than likely have passed. But then I was able to relocate and connect with his family members. He has four daughters and they're spread out throughout the country and we we're able to connect. And uh, they were thrilled to share this, the information of their father. They, they, as they said, he lived and died for the migrant workers. Even when they relocated to Chicago, he was in Greenport and Mattituck area from probably 1958 to 1971. 1971, the family relocated to Chicago with the, the Illinois area. And then he was there for a few years until he passed. So certainly uh, coming upon him was a great source of inspiration because he was fierce. He was intelligent. He was compassionate. And he really spoke out, you know, again, you know, having young children at the time and facing death threats, it's not easy to do. So it was really pronounced his, his efforts and certainly my driving force and inspiration. And who are some other advocates, people of color, people who came from different backgrounds, they pop up throughout the book and individuals who were injured and assaulted? 
Sure. I think of Josephine Johnson, who was nearly 100 years old, who just passed away last year, a woman of color who grew up in the area and, you know, saw and faced many things, but also was compassionate and in many cases lent to open up her home to some migrant workers or children of migrant workers to spend time there. She also was an educator at the school. I think of Helen Prince. She was a teacher at the Cutthroat Labor Camp School for more than a decade, prominent historian, Southhold for many years, who strived to teach these children. And, and when she lobbied for more funds, she was told, but Helen, you don't have to teach them anything. You just have to keep order. Again, that kind of shocking indifference. And then I think of Mary Chase Stone, a woman who came from a wealthy background from the New England area, who relocated to the Riverhead area and basically pledged her life to advocate for the workers. She opened up a nonprofit. She helped them in many ways to teach them different crafts and trades to leave the, the migrant stream. She had many court battles where she secured money back that was owed to many of the workers. One of the beauties of this story is that each time I give a lecture, I stumble upon someone whose relative used to teach at one of the camps or participated in some other way. And, and that kind of resurgence just builds on the story. There were many better angels, as I've called them in the book. Um, the ones I highlighted were certainly paramount, but there were many others that may still be out there who certainly lent their time and, and resources and money even to help these conditions. And they're all praiseworthy. What do you think is the overall impact these camps had on the eastern end of Long Island? Did it add to migration and diversity <laughs> in the area? Did it impact it culturally? First and foremost, and that's a very good question in many layers, but first, the first impact that the legacy, if you will, that lasts today is that it's another set example where industry was valued far greater than human life. That is the recurring paramount theme of this history, sadly. I can tell you that Riverhead factored in very greatly because many of the workers, in fact, Riverhead and Southhold accounted for 60% of the, of the, the workers and 70% of the labor camps in Suffolk County. So when many in the migrant stream were to stay in the area, they stayed in Riverhead. In 1960, 1,000 migrant workers settled in the area. 10 years later, that went up to 1,600. And as you know, Riverhead is not necessarily a large area, so there's a large influence of people who presumably are still in the area and clusters in certain areas. There are portions of Riverhead where some of the descendants of these workers were there, and even prior to that, from the Great Migration, the early part of the century. There was a lot of people who were, at the time, living in squalid conditions at the Hollis Warner duck farm which Mr. Warner, when that industry was shuttering down, he converted that those buildings into rentable spaces. And these people lived in deplorable conditions. When the eventually the county bought out that property, which today is a golf course and it's an Indian Island State Park, beautiful area, they relocated a lot of those people to different parts of Long Island. They realized they just can't disperse them and leave them to the street. They did relocate to different areas throughout Long Island. So it's sort of a mixed bag. There is some still around adding to the cultural element, and primarily in the Riverhead area, as well as other areas that they may have been relocated throughout over time. I, living upstate, have met two people, uh, another librarian, and now my neighbor, who literally lives two doors over, who actually did some work for the state going to Long Island labor camps. And I know you spend a, a good chunk of your book talking about some of the state-level legislation that impacted that homework. Was it the state first that really jumped in since the counties were kind of ignoring it? Well, that too is a mixed bag. Lee Dennison at the time was the county supervisor, and he was a strong, outspoken critic of the system. However, his constituents were the mighty, powerful agricultural industry. So really, a lot of his talk and his rhetoric was nothing more than that. Uh, he had little power. There was little political will for him to even make any change. Much of the public um, was unawares of the camp, and if they were, it was out of sight, out of mind. You know, these people, they were seen as outsiders coming from different places, and thus, you know, not one of us. So why should I have to think about any changes there? And that's hard to kind of condemn all these years later. 
but it just was part of the situation. Everyone knew this is a large agricultural area. Everyone knew there was a, a serious demand for labor, particularly during the World War II era and shortly thereafter. Somebody had to do the work. So the trade-off there was if they're outsiders, then it'll be what it'll be. In terms of enforcement, New York had an interesting dichotomy because they had state troopers investigate fires and deaths and crimes, but they also had the county as well. I had the good fortune of interviewing Joseph Gratton, the Riverhead police chief at the time. He took me around very great um, tour, if you will, of the old locations, which are no longer there, but you can just kind of picture in your mind what they were like. And he explained back then there were no cell phones, of course, they had call boxes. And he said, if you couldn't find a call box and you ran into trouble, you either talked your way out of trouble or you fought your way out of trouble. You know, that was the kind of, that's an alarming statement from the police chief of the time, but it really gives an indication of the many forces that were in play here and the struggles that were met, as well as the first responders. I mean, I spoke to people and nurses, they had to witness smoldering bodies come in after a fire from one of the camps or a decrepit shack or in Riverhead alone in 1959, there were eight deaths in 11 days by fire. Just a terrible setting. And those were not necessarily labor camps. They were just migrants who settled in the area living in 12 by 12 shacks or uh, modified chicken coops. You know, just really terrible conditions. It's a dark period in the state's history. What can we learn from this to move forward? Well, again, this really does highlight how industry was far greater than human life. And, and sadly, that's a recurring theme that probably will, will be with us to the end of time. If you think about today's Amazons and other places of the world where these companies are really just focused on profit and workers not um, so much so. I think that first and foremost, what was important is to resurrect this history. This happened less than 90 miles from New York City for more than half a century, affecting thousands of people. Until my book was released in March... 90% of the people who read it didn't know about it. It was just unknown. It was suppressed. It was hidden. It was obscure. And so my greatest goal was to tell it and capture it. And you're right, not just for Long Island. You mentioned earlier you were upstate, uh, beautiful countryside there. And, and as you know, there are many camps, even still today, and certainly back in the, in the day, upstate as well. Most of that was apple orchards, even peppermint farms. And a lot of that went in Niagara County, a lot of those counties out in Western New York. And although my focus was specifically in Suffolk County, New York had its own niche special market. And that's worthy of attention. So that was really the primary focus to raise that attention. It happened here too. Let's not forget this. The Albany Made Podcast is a production of Albany Public Library in Albany, New York, engineered by Ryan Slowey. You can find copies of Long Island Migrant Labor Camps, Dust for Blood, in the collection here at APL and wherever books are sold. You can find more episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, on our YouTube page at Albany NY Library, or by visiting www.albanypubliclibrary.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.